This is an audio sermon recorded at the Church of Christ at Johnson Mill in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 3801 Johnson Mill Boulevard. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 4, and introduce our thoughts this morning, which is the gospel of Christ. Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also you're saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul introduces the Gospel. We'll come back to those verses in a minute. Now look at Mark 16 verse 15 and 16. This is the account given by Mark of the Great Commission, and Jesus wanted this gospel that Paul talked about preached to every person on earth. And so, they're in the Great Commission in Mark 16, 15. This is Christ speaking, and He said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. What is the gospel? The word gospel just means good news, good news. And Paul said the good news is that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You'll see on the front side the gospel pictured there in that top picture. How Christ died for our sins and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus wanted this preached to everyone on earth. Go preach this gospel, my death, burial, and resurrection to every creature. He who will believe it and be baptized, Jesus said, will be saved, and those that will not believe it will be damned or condemned. And so, this gospel is essential to salvation. Since it is, I want to examine it thoroughly today, not just lightly, not just on the surface, but really dig down a little bit. Why did Jesus die for our sins? Let's look at His burial a little bit, and let's talk about the importance and significance of His resurrection as well. And then we'll talk about believing that gospel and even obeying the gospel. But first of all, Paul said the first fact in the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, not His. Why? Why did He die for our sins? Well, first of all, because of the justice of God. You see, God is not like our judicial system here in this country. God is perfect in His justice, and God punishes every sin. I want to say that again. God punishes every sin. He has to. He lets no sin go unpunished. Somebody will pay for that sin. You and I will pay for it, or Jesus will pay for it. But that sin has got to be paid for under God's system of justice. And if it's not, if He lets one of us get by with something, He can let anybody get by. So God is just equal. He just doesn't let anybody get by. He demands justice, that every sin be punished according to the penalty in His Word. We'll talk about that penalty. We see this principle of punishing every sin throughout the Old Testament. In Hebrews 2, verse 1 to 3, the Bible refers to this. Paul said, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels, that means the Old Testament, was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, 
which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him. Under the Old Testament law, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Note that statement. We've got numerous examples of this throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you one here if you'll read with me from Numbers 15, and let's look at verse 32 to 36. The Bible says, And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in ward, because it was not determined what should be done unto him. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp, and stoned him with stones. And he died as the Lord commanded Moses. What did this guy do? He's gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Why? Did he not know the law? The law said that six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, in it thou shalt do no work. He knew that commandment in the law, didn't he? And yet he's out here gathering sticks. Now, I don't know why he's gathering sticks. If he's, if he's wanting to kindle a fire, it was unlawful on the Sabbath to even kindle the fire. Nobody did any cooking. The ladies cooked a double portion the day before, and they, they ate of the food that was prepared the day before, you see, because work was not to be done on this day. And he knew that, and so they catch him working, and they bring him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, and they don't know what to do with him. They locked him up or put him in ward, because the Lord didn't say what to do. And the Lord finally spoke to Moses, and He tells him, This man will be put to death. I want all this congregation to take him outside this camp and stone him with stones. And they took this man outside the camp, and that congregation stoned him to death with stones, and he died as the Lord commanded Moses. Every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Now, God is a God of love, and God is a God of grace, but He's a God of justice. And we need to understand that side of Him. God hates sin, and God punishes sin. And he has to do that because he can do nothing else. So every sin that you and I commit has got to be punished by God, and he will. Ultimately, all of our sin will get punished. The problem is, in regard to us, we're all guilty of sin. That's our great problem. God's got a perfect justice system. He punishes every sin, and the trouble is we've all committed sin. You only have to sin one time to be worthy of the penalty for sin. James chapter 2 and verse 10, James said, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. Once you violate God's law, the law loses its ability to save you. All law can do then is condemn you. And all of us, the trouble is, have broken that law. In Romans 3 and verse 10, the Bible says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. Would the person here today that's never sinned in your life raise your hand? You don't see mine up either. We read in verse 23 of Romans 3, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we're all sinners, aren't we? We've all broken God's law, and, and, and now what's God going to do? Well, He's got to punish that sin. And what's the penalty for sin? Romans 6 and 23, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
That word death there is referring to the lake of fire, the second death. <clears throat> That's the result of the punishment for sin. You and I deserve to be cast into the lake of fire because we've sinned. That's just the bottom line. And God has to punish our sin. Somebody's got to die. Now God, for whatever reason, loves us. I don't understand it, and you probably don't either. We're not very lovable. We think we are. We think we're pretty good people, but we're not. We're outlaws. We're criminals. We are, we are violators of God's law. Every one of us are transgressors. And we might as well fess up and admit that, that we have violated and transgressed the laws of God. We're not that good. The Bible says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. It is in God's sight because He's perfectly holy. And we're not holy. And now here's this sin problem we have, and God doesn't want us to pay that penalty. He's decreed that the wages of sin is death. But in Hebrews 2 and 9, the Bible says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste of death for every man. So God's plan then was to send Jesus to this earth and let Him pay the penalty that you and I owe. Let Him taste of death for every person. Now Jesus is, a, is an individual not well understood, I'm afraid, by many people today. A lot of folks really don't know who we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. But Jesus is an eternal spirit being. There's never been a time when Christ did not exist. Never. He's existed with the Father from all eternity. There's just never been a time there was not Jesus Christ. Now there was a point in history when He came down and was born there in Bethlehem and took on human form. But before that He existed eternally with the Father. He is God Himself. He's equal with God, in fact. Look at Philippians 2 and verse 5 through 8. Paul said, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So in Jesus then we have God and we have man. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but the Bible says he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. He comes down to earth and takes on human flesh. And there at Bethlehem, this one that has always existed now comes down to live into that little, in that little baby born at Bethlehem and to grow into a man and ultimately to give his life and die on the cross for the sins that you and I have committed, for the sins of the whole world and for all mankind. When Micah prophesied of Jesus' birth back in Micah 5 and 2, he mentions the eternal existence of Jesus. He says, But thou Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The one there at Bethlehem's goings forth had been from old, from everlasting. Jesus is from everlasting. Do you see that? There's never been a time when He didn't exist. And yet God's plan was to send this one that's always existed, His Son, down to the earth and let Him live in a human body like ours and live sinlessly. 
so that He ultimately could take our sins upon Himself and die in our place so that we don't have to die because the wages of sin is death. And that's why we need Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. Look again at His power and His eternal nature in, in John 1, verse 1 to 3. John speaks of Jesus and says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now notice, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. When you look at the sun in the sky today, Jesus Christ made that. That's a huge burning, uh, I guess, what would we call it, a star, not a planet full of gases. Scientists tell us we've got a surface temperature there on the sun of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. There's over a million earths could be fit into the sun. That's how huge it is. Probably about 1.3 million earths can be placed inside the sun. Imagine having the ability to speak that into existence. That's what Jesus did. He commanded, and there's the sun, there's the stars, there's the moon, here's the earth the oceans, the land, all the vegetation, and then ultimately human life. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now who is this Word? Verse 14. The Bible says, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among, dwelled among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's that Word that was in the beginning with God and was God that made everything, and now that Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 3 speaks of the nature of Jesus again, His, His, uh, His deity, His likeness to God the Father. We read in verse 1 of Hebrews 1 that God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath made heir of all things, listen, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. Look at those statements about Christ. He is the brightness of His Father's glory, he is the express image of His person, of God's person. He upholds all things by the word of His power. And when He's purged our sins, He sat down on the right hand of the throne of God, you see, because He is God. He is deity. So this is God's plan then. Since we have sinned and the wages and punishment for our sin is death, you and I can't afford to pay that. God loves us, so He sends His Son down to the earth to live in a human body like ours. Jesus then came to die to pay the penalty that we owe for sin. But in order to do that, our Lord couldn't afford to sin. You see, we've sinned so lightly in our lives, haven't we? So carelessly and indifferently we may know something's wrong, and yet we say or do it anyway. Jesus couldn't do that. Because if He ever sins one time, He can't die for us. He would die for His own sins. Our Lord had to come down here and live in a body like ours, be subject to all the temptations that we face, yet He had to live perfectly. And we have not done that, but He did. Notice how the Scripture describes this in 1 Peter chapter 2 at verse 21 through 24. 
Peter said, for even here too were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His steps. Listen, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. So we learn there that Jesus was sinless, that there was no guile found in his mouth, no deceit. And Peter says that when Jesus was reviled, he reviled not again. When they taunted at him and teased him as he died on the cross, he never looked down to his enemies and said, I'm going to get you fellows one day. You'll be sorry for this. What's the first thing he said on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do. He never hurled down curses on his enemies. He never threatened them. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. The Bible says, when he suffered, he threatened not. He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He, he let God take care of it. And then, in his great love for us, shed his blood there on the cross to pay the debt that we owed for sin. And that brings me to the next point. He bore our sins that day on the cross. Can you imagine bearing the sins of everybody around you? Just think about this room. If we had to take upon ourselves just the sin that's been committed by everybody here today. Can you imagine all the sins that would be laid over on us to our account? That's what Jesus took that day at Calvary, the sins of all who ever will live, from Adam to the last. He bore those sins as if He had committed them. And God has always required death as the punishment for sin, and death involves the shedding of blood. And Hebrews 9 and 22 says that Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Why blood? Because it's the life of the flesh. Blood is life. Don't we hear the advertisements today, give life, give blood? Yeah, blood. First thing God told Noah when they got off the ark, almost, do not eat the blood of any living creature. Don't eat the blood of any flesh, because the blood's the life of the flesh. We're still forbidden to eat blood. Blood is life. And so, since the wages of sin is death, life had to be poured out. Blood. We will drink fruit of the vine this morning when we take communion to remember that blood. We will eat bread to remember His body that bore our sins, that suffered so greatly. We'll do those things, and we do that every Sunday, every first day of the week. It takes blood. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Peter said, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, <clears throat> as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Silver and gold cannot purchase forgiveness. If it could, the wealthy could purchase forgiveness right now. And those of us that don't have much would just be without any means to secure our salvation. Because if we don't have much money, we couldn't buy forgiveness of sins. But we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. We're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And let's think about that blood. There is nothing, nothing in this world that can make atonement for our sins but the blood of Jesus. So the Lord and His blood stand between us and a devil's hell. That's just the bottom line of it. And without the shedding of blood, the Bible says there's no remission. 
I would have you look at Romans 3 with me, verse 23 to 26. I wish we had a lot of time just to talk about these verses. They're wonderful things that are taught in these verses. <clears throat> the Bible says there in verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Let's at least talk about these verses a little bit. Verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've talked about that. We're all sinners. Verse 24, we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ. There's that blood payment, that redemption. That's what justifies us. And then in 25, Paul says that God has set forth Christ to be a propitiation, that is, a, an atoning sacrifice. To propitiate means to conciliate, it means to reconcile. And what Jesus did at Calvary was to reconcile us back to God, because God's angry at us on the account of our sin. And there'll be a day of wrath when God's anger is going to be poured out on humanity. And all that have sin in their lives are going to suffer the vengeance of God. They're going to suffer His anger. There's one thing that will remove that wrath from off of us, and that's our faith in the blood of Jesus. When we put faith in that blood, that blood becomes our propitiation. It becomes a, an atoning sacrifice that appeases God's anger and wrath. And here's another thing that blood does. It pays, of course, the price of our redemption, our salvation. It settles the debt we owe God. The wages of our sin is death, and that blood, of course, is the pouring out of Christ's life, and it settles that debt. But it does this also. That blood enables God to be just when He justifies us. You see, God can't issue a pardon without being just in so doing. He can't just look at us and say, I forgive you all. He can't do that. If He could, Jesus didn't have to die. In God's justice system, the penalty's got to be paid. And God's scheme is this, He will let His Son pay the penalty for us, and then He'll issue you and I a pardon and consider our debt paid because Jesus paid it. He's not letting our sin go. He's punishing our sin in Jesus. See, God punishes every sin, and the wages of sin is death. And if Jesus did not die for us, we have no payment for our sins except us going to hell and paying for it for all eternity, and God didn't want that. And so when we put our faith and trust in Christ's blood, see, that blood becomes an atoning sacrifice that appeases God's anger. And that's basically what Paul was saying in 25. Look at it again. He said of Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. What does that mean? When it says declare His righteousness, it's not talking about God's personal righteousness, although He is righteous. It's talking about God's justice. Let's think about Old Testament characters. Remember when God justified Abraham? Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, we read. You remember when David sinned, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then had her husband Uriah killed? And Nathan the prophet came to David, and 
and said, The Lord hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. So God just forgave David of adultery and murder. Now how's that justice? Well, God proved at Calvary that it was just, He was just in forgiving David. Why? Because David bore Jesus' sin on the cross, and there's where the debt was paid. You see, God had set forth Jesus to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness, His justice, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. God declared at Calvary when Jesus died that He was just or righteous in pardoning Abraham, David, anyone else back in the Old Testament, and He does that today. He said to declare at this time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. It is the blood of Christ that enables God to justly forgive you and I. He's not letting our sins go. Jesus is paying the debt. And when we have faith in Christ's blood and we obey that gospel, our sins are forgiven. They're not overlooked. They're paid by Christ at the cross. And so the good news of the gospel is this, Christ died for our sins. Thank God He did. Because if He doesn't come and do that, we've got to die. We've got to go to hell. He stands between us, as I said, in the lake of fire. The second fact of the gospel is, Paul said that Jesus was buried. And I want to look at the record of His death and burial. Would you read where with me on the back side now? <coughs> Very back. <coughs> John 19, verse 30 to 37. Here's John's record of Jesus' death. <coughs> he said, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, He said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that, and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that He was dead already, they brake not His legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced His side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that you might believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken, and again another Scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. So here's Jesus then on the cross. His spirit leaves. He gave up the ghost. And the Jews are worried now because a high Sabbath day is coming on. It's right before the Passover. And they don't want those bodies on the cross. Sometimes a victim on the cross lingered a long time. Sometimes several days. Sometimes fever set in. Sometimes they, they died in horrible convulsions. It was a horrible way to die. And they didn't want those... They didn't want the thieves or Jesus lingering there, and so they besought Pilate to break their legs and speed up the death. And here's how that worked. When the victim was on the cross and impaled, nails through hands and feet, the body has a tendency to sag. And as Jesus' body would sag, like anyone else crucified, his lungs would fill up with water. He would smother to death, literally drowned in his own fluid. And so a victim would, even though it hurt, could push up with his feet maybe pull up a little with the hands and take in air, and he could keep breathing that way. But when they broke the legs, 
he lost any ability down there to push himself up. And the body sagged and the lungs filled up with fluid. And you'll notice when they pierced uh, the Lord's side, there came out blood and water. His lungs were full of, full of water. And that was, uh, that was part of the, of the death of one on the cross. It was a horrible way to die. But they came to Jesus and saw that He was dead already. Now notice, He was dead already, so they didn't break His legs. The Scripture had said that He keepeth all of His bones, not one of them shall be broken. And that was fulfilled there. The Lord's bones were never broken, see. But one of the soldiers, to make sure of his death, took a spear and ran it up into his side, and John said, Forthwith came there out blood and water. They made a huge hole in his chest with a Roman spear. And his blood, the blood that was shed for us, and water poured from that wounded side that day. And the death of Jesus occurred. It was a horrible death. Let's read on from John here and let him describe the burial of Jesus. John 19, verse 38 to 42. John says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus, and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where He was crucified there was a, a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher where was never man yet laid. There laid they therefore, or Jesus therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. So we get a little bit of the idea of the burial, and the fact that they buried Him of course was proved that it, proof that He was dead. They wound Him in linen cloth. We'll talk about His burial here in a minute. And uh, there's a reason why I'm emphasizing the fact that Jesus was actually dead at Calvary, because there's a theory that we'll talk about a little bit later that Jesus never really died, that, that He wasn't dead at Calvary. He went off into kind of a swoon and later resuscitated and came out of the tomb, see. But the record says that He was dead. The soldiers made sure. They didn't break His legs. They ran a spear up into His side to, to further reinforce that fact and to make sure of it. And now they bury Him. And Jesus had predicted all of this. Uh, let's look at His prediction here in Matthew 20, verse 18 and 19. He tells the twelve, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn Him to death, and shall deliver Him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day He shall rise again. The Lord predicted all that. We're going to go to Jerusalem. Hey, the Jews, I'm going to be betrayed to the Jews, and they're going to condemn me. They're going to take me over to the Gentiles to be crucified, but the third day I'm going to rise again. And beloved, you know what? His enemies had heard the same thing. They'd heard this prediction too. I'm glad they did. Look at Matthew 27, verse 62 to 66. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure unto the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate saith unto them, Ye have a watch. 
go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. I'm glad they did that. I'm glad the disciples, the enemies of Christ rather, took every precaution they could to make sure that nothing that might even resemble a resurrection could take place. I mean, they sealed the stone there at the tomb. They, they set a guard to make sure. That guard stayed there till the third day. They did everything they could to keep that body in that tomb and make sure that nobody touched it, that it wasn't stolen and the world was given the story that He had risen from the dead. See? Oh, I'm glad they did that. It turned out to be one of the worst mistakes they ever made. And yet, good for us. Good for us. Let's look on the back of the front side, on your chart, on the inside. I'm going to do a lot of reading here with you for a moment. I want to look at some details of the Lord's death and burial. We've talked some about His death and His burial. But let's, let's just read some of this together here, these six points. We'll talk about His death. We'll talk about the tomb. We'll talk about the custom of the Jews in burying their dead. We'll talk about the great stone that covered the entrance. We'll talk about the sealing of that stone and the positioning of the guard. First of all, when you think of the Lord's death, He suffered a very cruel and violent death. Read with me. At His trial He was slapped and spit upon. He was scourged or whipped by the Roman soldiers. This scourging wasn't like when Dad got his belt out incidentally and gave us a few stripes on the rear end. They tore the Lord's back up. Those whips, uh, Roman whips, had, a, had leather strands that came off of them and in, knotted into those strands of leather were pieces of metal or stone or bones, anything that would cut and lacerate flesh. They literally tore His back up and lacerated His flesh. Those scourgings were so brutal many times that historians say that sometimes they, they would miss and that leather might come around and it would just pull the teeth out of a person, just knock their teeth out. Uh, sometimes the whips cut them so bad that their bowels, their intestines, would just protrude out of their side. It was a horrible beating that Jesus took. The Bible says that by His stripes we are healed. Remember, He has our sins. And so they lay many stripes upon Him. It was a, a very horrible death that the Lord suffered. And then after He was of course, uh, uh, scourged with those whips, they planted a crown of thorns and a purple robe and put a frail reed in his hand for a scepter and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews. They led him out to Calvary and the custom of crucifixion took place. They laid him on his back, stripped him of his clothing, impaled his hands, and in Jesus' case, his feet to a cross. And then they raised that cross up to an upright position and dropped it in a hole that had already been prepared for it there in the ground. And they impaled Him on that cross and suspended Him between heaven and earth to suffer and die. It was a horrible death. Now you and I may die, we don't know how yet, it may be something pretty bad. We may be burned alive in a car accident, we, we may be torn limb from limb, we, we don't know how we're going to go out of here, we have no idea. Chances are we'll not suffer like Jesus did. And He did this willingly. He never died of natural causes. Perfect health. He gave His life that day because He bore our sins. Look at the tomb in which He was buried. The Bible says it was a new tomb. It was hewn out of solid rock. We're told that it was a tomb in which no one before had yet been buried. 
Historians tell us these Jewish tombs usually had an entrance about four and a half to five feet high. Look at the diagram here. Just a huge opening, four and a half feet to five feet high uh, going into that entrance there. Most tombs had a forecourt that led into a burial chamber itself. In other words, think of an Eskimo igloo. Think of a little, kind of little narrow passage going in, and then once you get inside, the tomb expands and, and opens up wider once you get in there. In the center of the burial chamber, there was a pit that allowed a person to stand upright. So it, it was dug down lower, the floor was on the inside, allowing a person in there of a fairly good height to stand up without hitting their head on the ceiling, not have to stay stooped over all the time inside the tomb. There were several ledges of rock upon which the bodies of family or loved ones would be laid. So all around the sides of that tomb just pictured hewn out of rock ledges, kind of rock-like table things that came off the side walls, and they laid bodies all around different places inside that tomb. Most of them were for multiple bodies, multiple burials there in one chamber. The sepulchers had a groove or a trough cut in the front in order to hold the huge stone that sealed them. There would have been a, a slot right here, kind of cut down, and the lowest part would have been at the center, and then this huge stone would have been set there, and that stone set in that trough off to the side. It had a wedge underneath it. And when they moved that wedge out from under it, the stone, just gravity, just rolled down to that lowest point and came to a rest right in front of the entrance and covered it up. It was a, it was a huge stone there. And uh, so that's, that's, how they, uh, that's how they buried the dead. That was what a tomb basically looked like. Now, verse uh, number three here, the custom of the Jews in burying their dead. The body was placed on a, uh, excuse me, placed on a stone table inside the tomb, washed with warm water. It was dressed in grave clothes made of white linen. And then the body was wrapped in linen strips. Just picture a mummy. Kind of get the picture here in, in, uh, in the diagram in front of us. Just picture these, his body wrapped in, in linen strips, just wound up. And uh, there were spices laid in the folds of the linens. Nicodemus had brought a hundred pounds of spices, the weight of the grave clothes, and linen wrapping, if all the spices were used, might have been 110 to 120 pounds of wrapping and spices wrapped around Jesus' body, and there he was laid in that tomb. Number four, there's the great stone that covered the entrance. Matthew calls it a great stone, Matthew 27:60. A few years ago, some engineers from Georgia Tech made a, a tour of Israel with other faculty members. They calculated that a stone large enough to cover a tomb with an opening of four and a half to five feet would have a minimum weight of three to 4,000 pounds. Think of that. It is a great stone. That's why it's described that way. And if it be asked, well, how could Joseph and, and them deal with such a stone? How could they get it to cover this entrance? The answer is that slot that, it was, that was cut in front of it just a, a groove there that uh, when, they, when they cut that slot out and set the stone in it, they put a wedge in front of the stone. And uh, when you remove that wedge that was there, this stone then setting in that slot just rolled down in front and it covered up and sealed that over. That would have been a huge stone. It was a uh, so huge, in fact, remember when the women came that morning, they were wondering, three able-bodied women, how they were going to get that stone rolled back. 
they came bright and early, Mary Magdalene and others, and they were greatly concerned about that. They should have been. It was a huge stone. The ceiling of the stone, uh, after the guard inspected the tomb, uh, we might think, well, did they put, uh, what did they do, put cement all around that big rock? No, 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 no. The ceiling was more like this. They, they put a piece of clay here, and they had a cord, and they plastered that cord to the side of the tomb, stretched it across the stone, and had some ceiling clay on the other side. It was just a, a cord stretched across, and that uh, ends of it were sealed with clay, and then probably pressed into that clay would have been the governor's signet. So kind of like a notary seal on some of our documents. If, if this cord were pulled loose when the stone was removed, it would tear that clay and break the seal, and it wouldn't have that impress of the governor there, see? So they, they sealed the stone this way, and, and that's what we mean by that. And then in, uh, the last thing that I want to mention is the positioning of the guard. There would have been folks, about 16 soldiers, uh, uh, stationed around this tomb, four of them, maybe in front of it, and there's 12 others out here, uh, maybe lying all around. Those others might be, oh, they might be visiting, laughing, cutting up, talking, or sleeping, or resting. There were always four fresh guards at all times standing in front of this sepulcher, and they change a shift with them about every three hours or so. And so in the 12 hours here, where you just had to pull one three-hour shift, there was plenty of time for rest. None of them should have been tired, none of them should have been sleepy, because they, they, uh, they adjusted that guard around the clock every three hours, see. Pretty good, pretty good setup for guarding. And that ensured that watchful eyes, four men were always on guard, stationed there. And so I'm glad they set that guard there like that, aren't you? They did everything they could, you see, to take away the appearance of a resurrection. But that's his death and burial. Now let's look at his resurrection just a moment. Uh, and let's get the gospel record. Look on the, the very back, and let's get John 20. And let John describe this resurrection for us. John 20, and let's read verses 1 to 10. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto him, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. That other disciple, of course, is John. And he's writing this. And he, John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own house. Let's stop there a minute. They wound the Lord's body like a cocoon, if you'll think of these wrappings. Over his head they place a napkin, the cloth. Now he's bound. Do you think about uh, winding a hay rope around somebody from head to foot? You'd never break that, would you? 
There's no way uh, just in his own strength that Jesus could have busted loose, see. They wound him, kind of like a mummy, with uh, aloes and spices in the folds of those wraps. But when the disciples come, they find that stone removed. It's open. Now the grave's open, and this body that was in there is missing. They didn't see any wrappings strewn all around inside as if somebody had come in there and stole that body and, and unwound all the wrappings and just strode them everywhere. They found everything in order, and here's what folks believe happened. Picture Jesus coming up through these wrappings and just leaving them there like a cocoon shape. Just picture that. That's the idea I want you to get of passing through all those wrappings. So when they come in, they basically just see the shell that he was in, the wrappings, laying there like a cocoon. The napkin that was over his face, not thrown around, folded very neatly and laid over in another place by itself. You know, a thief, if he were going to steal that body, why would he take time to fold the napkin, you know, and place it over in a special place? And he would have had to have unwound all the wrappings, wouldn't he? They'd just be everywhere, those linen strips. But there was none of that kind of mess. Everything was orderly, but there was no body there. The tomb was empty. And then we read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's record, Moreover, brethren, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, and that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now notice, that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain under this present, but some are fallen asleep. That is, some of them are dead. After that He was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all He was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. That's Paul's record. Now Jesus rose that day, but He wasn't just seen by very few people. He was seen by Cephas or Peter, seen of the twelve, seen of all the apostles, seen of James. Paul said He was seen of above five hundred brethren at one time, and he said the greater part of them still remain. So let's say that sixty percent of those were still alive. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians about 57 A.D. Jesus died around 30 A.D. So 27 years later, the greater part of that 500 that saw Him were still alive, Paul said. Most of them still remain. And if there were 60% of them that remained, there would have been over 300 still alive that had seen Him. Paul said, last of all, He was seen to me also as one born out of due time. Paul saw Him on the way to Damascus, saw Him in His glory and was blinded by Him. So there were many eyewitnesses that Jesus was alive after His death, that He rose indeed, He rose the third day. But folks, since, uh, since the resurrection there's been all kinds of false theories trying to explain it away, to say that Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. I don't know why people want to do that, because that's our hope. If our Lord didn't rise from the dead, we won't rise. It was wonderful that He died for our sins and paid our debt, that's fine, but what good is it 
if we're forgiven of sins and we go down to the grave never to live again. We're no better off than a sinner except we're lying underground with sins forgiven, with no hope of ever living again. So Jesus not only took care of our sin problem at Calvary, He took care of our resurrection problem, our need for resurrection on the third day. And without that we don't have any hope of life everlasting. When you do away with this shedding of His blood, you do away of course with, with the penalty paid for our sins. When you do away with His resurrection, you destroy our hope of life everlasting. The Lord did everything we need. But we have these false theories. I've listed some on the back or on the back of the front. Would you read some of these with me? We may not read all this, but let's look at these right quick. There is the swoon theory. It's been suggested that the Lord never really died. This is ridiculous. First Pilate made a special investigation to find out if he died. The fact that Joseph wanted his body so soon after the crucifixion suggested an unusual circumstance to Pilate. So he made special investigation, satisfied himself that he was dead. And remember he had the, the soldiers went out there to break his legs, but they didn't. They, they thrust a spear into his side and blood and water came out. But even without the Gospel we could prove from secular historians that, that, that uh, Jesus actually died. Uh, Josephus and many others mention his death, but let's suppose for a moment Jesus didn't die on the cross. As some of his enemies claim, he went off into kind of a swoon, and later his strength came back to him. He was resuscitated and escaped from the tomb. Does it sound reasonable that a person who had spent three days in a tomb, whose body had been ravaged by scourging, whose, uh, whose body had been pierced by nails in the hands and feet, whose side had been pierced by a spear, could have mustered up enough strength to have removed that ponderous stone from the mouth of the sepulchre? Remember that stone weighs three to four thousand pounds. And also the way it laid over the opening, Jesus would not have had a, 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 a grasp on the edge of that stone even to try to move it back. He would have had to have done that with the palms of His hands, flatly against a three or four thousand pound stone, and push it back and create an entrance. And here His hands have been pierced with nails, so was His feet, and so has His side and his back is torn up by the scourging of the whip. I'll tell you what, to believe this swoon theory, it's harder to believe than the Bible record of the resurrection. It's hard to believe this nonsense. And yet there are people that say, well, he really didn't die. He just, he later resuscitated and broke out. Nonsense. Number two, there is the theory that the disciples of Jesus came and stole his body. This was the oldest explanation to falsely explain away the empty tomb. Matthew writes about it in Matthew 28, 11 to 15. Read that with me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. Folks, this was the best explanation his enemies could think of to explain away that empty tomb. They weren't dummies, they were shrewd. And this was the best thing they could come up with. But it's, it's an absurd theory. First of all, the disciples would not have stolen the body 
uh, even if they could. Jesus had told them He'd be crucified and rise the third day. They didn't understand it. They didn't believe it. And when the women who saw Him alive came and said, Hey, the Lord is alive. He's risen from the dead. Luke 24, 11 says, Their words seemed unto them as idle tales, and they believed them not. They wouldn't even believe the women who had seen Him. See. In the second place, they could not have removed the body because there was a guard at the tomb. And I know the guard was bribed to say that while they were asleep, uh, the disciples came and stole the body away. But you know what? Men that are asleep don't make very good witnesses. Think about that a minute. While, they, while we were asleep, His disciples came. See, that's what they told Can you imagine me going to Ben and Lana's and robbing their house, and later Ben says, well, Pat came while we were sleeping and robbed our house. Well, Ben, how do you know it was me? You know, Those that are asleep don't make a very good eyewitness. This is an absurd theory, isn't it? Uh, in the next place, uh, think of those linen clothes that they saw lying there in that napkin. There was no hurry to, you know, to take the body out, to unwrap it and steal it in that fashion. They, we've got a cocoon-like thing laying there. The wrappings are still intact. The napkin is, is just folded over into place by itself. Everything's very orderly, very meticulously done. There's been no theft of a body here, in other words. The wrappings and the covering are still there, and the body's missing, see, with no mess in the tomb. It, it, doesn't even, it doesn't even look like that. And then think about the change that came over the apostles if they stole that body. How do we, uh, how do we account for the change in their behavior? They were full of despair when he died. After the resurrection, they're full of hope. They were cowards when he was crucified. They're some of the bravest men on earth when they preached his resurrection. They... Uh, not only that, they, they suffered the loss of everything they had, testifying to the day they died that He rose from the dead. Why would they give up homes and family and treasures that they might have and businesses like the fishermen trade, as Peter and some of them did, and just walk away from the nets? See, He said, we've left all and followed you. Every one of them ultimately gave their life testifying that Jesus rose from the dead, except for maybe John, who might have died a natural death. But all these men died preaching the resurrection. How do we explain that kind of behavior if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Why would they give their life like this when they knew it was a lie? See, makes no sense. Number three, some say, well, the enemy stole the body. Bless your heart, <laughs> whoever came up with this thought. Listen, let me tell you something. I'm glad His enemies went to all that trouble to make it look like a resurrection would never occur. They had egg on their face when it was over. I'm going to tell you something. They, the enemies would have loved to have had His body. They'd love to have had that body. Can you imagine 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and preaches for the first time the death, burial, and resurrection. Now, if His enemies had the body, don't you think they'd, they'd come in carting that lifeless body? They would have made Peter and the others liars, made them look like fools, discredited them forever, destroyed the message of the resurrection completely. They would have loved to have had the body, but they didn't have it. See, none of those theories are true. What is true? What the Bible says. That an angel from God 
came down and rolled away that huge stone. And Jesus came forth from the dead just like he predicted and was seen of hundreds of people and rose from the dead victorious over death. That's what happened. And that's his death, burial, and resurrection. Folks, that's the gospel that we preach. And now let me finish by saying this. We can be saved by this gospel today, but this gospel's got to be believed and it's got to be obeyed. And I want to show you very quickly how you can have salvation because of His death, burial, and resurrection. In Mark 16, if you'll read there on the back, near the bottom, He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Preach my death, burial, and resurrection. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. Jesus named two things there. He said, you've got to believe this gospel and you've got to be baptized. How do we believe the gospel? We believe the facts that we've talked about here today. The Scriptures have evidence. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We preach the gospel, and that gospel produces faith. So we've got to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. But how do we obey the gospel? The Bible talks about obeying the gospel. That's done in baptism. That's what, why, why Jesus mentioned that we've got to be baptized. That's why He commanded it. Now what's baptism got to do with salvation? Just this. God has appointed baptism as a way for you and I to express our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by going through a likeness of it in that act. Look at Romans 6 with me now, verse 3 to 7. Paul said, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, there's the new birth. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. In baptism we are baptized into Christ's death. Our old man, the old person we were, is crucified with Him. We've got to die just like Jesus died. And God has appointed baptism for this act. Here's why. God says, Do you believe my son died for your sins? Then will you die with him? Will you die to sin? So in baptism we're baptized into His death, and we're crucified with Him. That the body of sin, we're told, might be destroyed. Paul said we're buried with Him by baptism into death. Just like Jesus died and was buried, we are buried with Him by baptism into death. And there the body of our sins is destroyed because we've reached the blood that He shed in His death. See? <clears throat> Jesus rose the third day from, from the dead. And we're raised up out of baptism to walk with Him in newness of life. Do you see that? So God has appointed baptism not so we can earn salvation. It has nothing to do with earning salvation. It is a commandment appointed by God whereby we express our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God in essence has said this, Do you believe my son died for you? Will you die with him? Will you be baptized into his death? Do you believe my son was buried? Will you be buried with him by baptism? Do you believe that my son rose the third day? Will you be raised up with him to walk in newness of life?
And that's all baptism is, is a, is a command so that we can demonstrate to God the fact that we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ by going through a likeness of it in the act that He commanded. And Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Can you see it? There's how we obey the gospel. The gospel's the death, burial, and resurrection. We obey it by going through a likeness of our own death, burial, and resurrection with Him, and thereby obey the gospel. And when we do this, and demonstrate that kind of faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in the shedding of His blood, that blood becomes the propitiation for our sins and pays our debt. And God forgives us and considers the debt paid by Christ, and we go free. That's the good news of the gospel, see. Christ pays the debt. <clears throat> Thank God for Christ. Before we close this study, I want to get you to thinking about something. If we didn't have Jesus for our Savior and for our hope of resurrection, where would we go? We've got over a billion people right now on earth that want to go to Muhammad. What's he going to do for them? He's in a tomb and needs a resurrection himself. He had his own sins. He couldn't die for our sins. He had his own sins. In fact, he is helpless to get out of that tomb unless somebody raises him from the dead. He can't raise any of us. He cannot pay our debt of sin, and He cannot provide our resurrection. There's no need in following that man. He has his own problems. I remember years ago, I was in Beaumont, Texas. There was a young man I was trying to study with, and he had found an Eastern guru of some kind. Some, the guy's name was Maharaji. I'll never forget his name. I don't know why. But uh, this young man I was trying to study with was telling me all about this guru, and how He could lead you to the light and get you to God and all this. And He said, uh, would you come hear a lecture of this man? Hear him lecture. And I said, well, yes. It was, a, it was actually a, it was a video of this man, this, this Eastern guru that they were all putting their confidence in on reaching God through him. And uh, he made a speech in which he talked about the light and leading us to the light and just a bunch of garbage, not, no substance to it. When we got through watching the video, we were standing in the back, and the young man came to me, and several of the others did, and they said, well, what did you think about this? What did you think about this guy? What did you think about his message? I said, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you guys something. I said, have you guys ever committed sin? Well, they said, well, yes, we're all sinners. I said, what kind of sacrifice do you have to appease God's wrath for your sin, to pay your sin debt? Jesus offers a blood sacrifice. What's this guy got? What's he offering to get us to God and get us forgiveness? He had no sacrifice. See. I asked him another question. I said, uh, are you guys going to die one day? They said, yeah. And we're all going to die. I said, who's going to get you up out of the tomb? Has this guru conquered death? Jesus did. There is no guru that's going to help us. There's no Muhammad that's going to help you. There is a Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, paid the debt for our sins with the shedding of His black blood, and who rose the third day to guarantee we will have a resurrection because He's already conquered death. He's been there and done that. And He has authority over the grave and over 
Hades itself. Jesus. Who else would we go to? I leave you with the words of Peter on one occasion in John 6. Jesus had a multitude of disciples, and when His sayings became hard, we read this. John says in John 6, 66, that from that time many of His disciples went back and walked no more with Him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that Thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter said, There's nobody else, Lord, we can go to for eternal life. And that's true today. There's nobody else you and I can go to. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. To receive new sermons each week, subscribe on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and God bless.